If you will, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 11 today and go through the end of the chapter. So pretty, pretty large bit of text here. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the truth of it, that through the ages you have preserved it. And though men have many times tried to make it their own, teach it their own way, to rob it of its truth, it has persevered because of faithful people you have raised up, and ultimately because of your own faithfulness to your people, to your church. And so we are thankful for that. We pray that we would continue to carry your word and its truth high, that we would not disregard it, that we would not pollute it or pervert it with our own ideas, but we would draw your truth from it and that we would see the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So as I read this story, and pretty much as I've been reading through Second Samuel or First Samuel, I've kind of shared this with you before, but there's this idea that we all love a story that has a very clear good guy, bad guy motif. And there are several reasons for that, and I would say primarily because it's ingrained in us from our Creator. We love the idea that there's this good versus evil playing out, and we are all one or the other. There is no room for gray. There's, there's no room for that. And this is determined according to our standing before a holy God, which, of course, without Jesus is completely lacking. His people standing with him because of him and everyone else standing against him because of their sin. And so, however, there is another reason that I think this is going on. It's because we love to see a good guy win. You know, we, we love to see evil defeated. We love to root for someone who seemingly shouldn't win but does against all odds anyway. We even do this in sports when we call our team the good guys and we call, like, the Cubs the bad guys uh, because we love that paradigm, right? We love this good, evil thing. We like that. And every good story, I think, any good story, whether it wants to or not, follows this idea because it is something that we most desire as humans. For good to win, for evil to be vanquished, it's our hope in the dying world. And so here in First Samuel, we already have seen that, I think, with Hannah and Peninnah, the other wife, the meek, gentle, barren first wife versus the provoking, mean, fertile second wife, and we've had that. Hannah received mercy and justice and the Lord or of the Lord with the birth of Samuel. Samuel was taken to the temple, if you remember from last week, and served under Eli, and there, there he would serve most of his days, or a lot of his days. And Eli already had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who will now enter our story as the two new bad guys. It's like chapter two, the new bad guys. 
And so, like all bad guys in Scripture, they really only serve as toadies for the master of evil, the serpent in the garden that we referred to this morning in our profession of faith. Remember the Lord told Satan that there would always be enmity between he and the woman and between her seed and his seed. And this story, I think, like many, many others in this book and the rest of the Old Testament will show this playing out. We see this all the way to the cross. And we see this all the way through history, really, where Jesus on the cross gave us absolute victory, and we continue to see that playing out. And we, as believers, share in that victory. However, we still battle evil. And so in this story, it helps us not only to see our own hand, I think, in the evil of this world, that in the evil that we battle against, but it also shows us the gospel as a central weapon in that battle. And, of course, at the center is our Lord Jesus. This story is about him. Let us not forget that. And so as we consider this story, I want to look at three ideas. First, the beautiful things that we profane. Second, the work that continues on. And lastly, the faithful priest who does the work. And so with that, let's read the text together. This is a long passage, so if you want to remain seated, that's, that's fine with me. I think the Lord will be all right with that. And so let's begin reading 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling, with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let him burn the fat, let them burn the fat first, then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen, linen ephod, and then and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing, and all of Israel were doing to all Israel, and now they and and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, "Why do you do such things? For I hear your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good to report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading about abroad. If someone sins against man." God will mediate for him, but if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of the Father. 
for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow in both stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli, and he said to them, to him, Thus the God, thus the God has, or the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be a priest and go up to my altar and burn incense to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire to the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded, and honor your sons above, my, above me by fattening yourselves on, the, yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering to my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there, there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of, of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in the heart and in the mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him, for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. Amen. This is God's word. And so as we begin, I want to look at this idea that the beautiful things that we profane. The ESV translates verse 12, and it says this, that Eli, or the sons of Eli were worthless men. The KJV, I think, probably has the best translation here. If you have a New King James, probably in a margin or something. And this is literal because it literally says what's in the Hebrew. And in the Hebrew, there's no verb here in this clause. And it actually literally says this. The sons of Eli, the sons of Belial. Belial is essentially one of the Hebrew terms for the devil. The devil, the one, the, the devil of Scripture. And so I think what the writer is trying to convey here is that the sons of Eli were essentially acting as the sons of Satan or his seed. And again, remember in Genesis 3, and I mentioned it in the introduction, and I promise we're going to see this theme over and over again. And I think it's there very clearly that the Lord said there will be enmity between your seed and her seed. And I think here we see just that going on. And I think especially when we see that we contrast that with verse 11. What is Samuel doing there in verse 11? And the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Ministering in the presence of the Lord. 
He was right there with God, ministering. We have this major contrast between the people of God and the enemies of God here in this text. And what is it that the enemies of God do? Well, I think that Hophni and Phinehas have proved that they're uh, the unsavory type of folk. Let's look at the different ways. Well, first, they take meat from the sacrifice, and they use this magic fork trick to get the meat. Um, the priests were provided for by the Levitical law. The priests were, were supposed to have particular portions of the meat, and you can go into Leviticus and look at that. They were supplied meat after the sacrifice was done to take care of themselves. Um, however, this is not the way that was to be done. There were particular portions that were to be given to them, they were, and they, it was just to be handled in this particular way. And so, in this case, they've created their own way for taking the meat. They take this giant fork, and they stick it into the pot, and whatever it brings up is theirs. Fascinating. Well, it gets a little worse. Later, they start asking for raw meat, rather than to have the fat cooked off. Why is this a big deal? Well, I think it actually serves us well to go to Leviticus and look at, look at this one, so let's do that. Leviticus chapter 7. Leviticus chapter 7. Starting at verse 22. And I think there's enough going on, particularly as we read the Old Testament, with the priests and the sacrifices in these stories, that it, it does do good for us to have a pretty good handle on what's expected. And this is, a good, this is a good example of that. So let's look at Leviticus chapter 7, starting at verse 22. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, You shall eat no fat of ox or sheep or goat. The fat of an animal that dies of itself and the fat of one that is torn by the beast may be put to any other use, but on no account shall you eat it. For every person who eats of the fat of an animal of which a food offering may be made to the Lord shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, you shall eat no blood what, what, whatever, whether fowl or of animal, any of your, in any of your dwelling places. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. And so what's going on here? Well, the Lord said don't do this. Don't eat any blood. Don't eat any fat of the animal. What are they going to get in the raw meat? Both of those. What are they trying to do? Well, they're trying to, like, like this man of God accused Eli, you're trying to fatten yourselves while the people of God starve. The Lord said that this was a very great sin in his sight. He said that to do this is to be cut off from your people. That's like the biggest sin possible, to be cut off from the people. And so how does the Lord view his instructions to the priests in general? Well, if you're still in Leviticus, look at Leviticus 10. This is a, probably a familiar story to you. Just a couple of verses here in Leviticus 10. The first two verses of Leviticus 10. How does the Lord view his instructions that he gives to priests, how they should follow them? Leviticus 10. 
Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Unauthorized fire, some sort, and some translations say a strange fire. What were they doing? They were offering something to the Lord that the Lord had not commanded to them. They had done something with the offering that they weren't supposed to do, and the Lord saw fit to consume them with fire. Does the Lord take his instructions seriously? Absolutely. That's why he gave us like tons of them in Leviticus, or gave the priests tons of them in Leviticus. He holds his law and order to the highest magnitude, so much so that if you don't follow it, it means your death. And I think particularly for the priest who represents the people and the people of God, for him to then abuse those people as they come to worship, that's even worse. And that's what we hear in this next story. What is he doing? We hear about these two men, Hophni and Phinehas, how they were treating the temple women as essentially as prostitutes. For whatever reason, these two men saw fit to have relations with these women who were serving at the temple, which again, again, is an outright misuse of their position and an abuse of the people. And so what was their punishment? Well, the Lord planned on cutting their entire house off from Israel and to remove his house, Eli's house, from the priesthood forever. The descendants of Eli had been priests for many years, and now we read that there will never again be an old man in their house. It says that there will only one will be spared, and he will, be, he will weep his eyes out, is what it says. We'll read later about a man named Abiathar, and he, uh, this is who many scholars believe this is who it's talking about that was spared, but even him, he's going to be banished later by King Solomon uh, for what Eli's sons did and for what Eli did. And so what we have here is a looking at how high the Lord considers this idea of what the priest should do, and thus the right worship of him. We ought to worship the Lord, and we ought to worship him how he says we should worship him. Now, at this point in the story, I think it's easy for us to begin to feel self-righteous and think how much better we are than these two men. I mean, we're not doing the crazy things they're doing, right? It's easy for us to do. We've never worshipped God in a way that wasn't prescribed, right? Or have we? I think we could easily go on into a spiel here about what good worship in a church looks like and what kinds of songs we should sing and whether or not we should have music or perhaps we should have some interpretive dancing or all, who knows. We could go into this long spiel about what's right and what's not in the church. Um, and that isn't a bad conversation to have, but with that type of conversation, we can always walk away feeling like everyone else needs to be saved. And we are the ones that have everything together. I heard uh, someone say recently that everyone or everyone is someone else's liberal. Well, that's the case. It's easy for us to be right when we're looking at ourselves in the mirror. So let's talk instead about our hearts when it comes to worship. Let's talk about our, the times that our heart isn't 
in our worship at all. That we simply mouth the words to the prayers that we pray and the songs that we sing. And that we idly listen to the word read and we idly listen to the word preached. All the while dreaming of those things that we would rather be doing. We ever dread Sundays? I have. I do. Sometimes. Why? Because honestly, my heart isn't in it all the time. It'd be wrong to say anything else. Because the worship of my Lord isn't always a priority. Because this is something that I struggle with. Something else becomes a priority on Sunday mornings. It's incredible how the how I think the evil one deals with us on Sunday mornings, and we've all talked about that together. And consider how much the Lord cares about the right worship of Him, and consider our own inability to do so a lot of times. As hard as we try, we'll always fail. We have good days, we have bad days. Thanks be to God, we won't be burned at the altar anytime soon, like Nadab and Abihu. Why? Because Jesus was killed on the cross for us. Jesus, the one who worshipped perfectly and always had the right heart, died so that someone with a heart of stone, like me, like you, could be saved. And so then what is our response to this as a church? Well, we come to him to worship. We should never let our problems with worship, like our, I just don't feel like it today. That's not a reason to go and worship, to not worship the Lord, guys. We should, why? Because we come to worship, and what is our prayer before we begin worship? Lord, help us. Help us to worship you. We read a psalm together where the psalmist is bringing his people into worship. Today we read from 1 Chronicles. The King David is bringing his people into worship. Why do we do that? Because the Lord God in his word incites his people to worship. And so why do we come to worship? Because he wants us to. He commands it. And we need his help and we pray for his help. We need it. Otherwise, what happens to us? We get bogged down. We might as well be the same as Hophni and Phinehas. We need someone to redeem our worship. And because of Jesus... We no longer stand condemned when we bring any kind of unauthorized worship, a worship that's half-hearted, a worship that's kind of focused on whatever else is going on. That doesn't mean that we just do as we please, but that does mean that we are forgiven, thanks be to God. Yet we are compelled to worship the Lord as he commands. And I think we're always going to be learning about what this is, this side of heaven, and we're thankful for the mercy and grace of our Savior as we learn. Unlike Hophni and Phinehas, we must be willing to set aside whatever it is that blocks us from worship, set it at the feet of our Lord Jesus, and worship him anyway. And so next, the work continues on. And so one thing that I noticed as I read through this passage is this glimmer of hope that has kind of weaved itself through the text as we mostly are consumed by the talk of these two bad guys and their not-much-better dad. Look at, verses, look at verse 11. We've already looked at that. And the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Verses 18 through 21. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe 
and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer yearly sacrifices. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give, your, give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. And so they would return home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Isn't it good to read that right after we got through reading about a thug who would still meet from worshipers? It's a good thing. Look at verse 26. And the young man Samuel continued to grow in both stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Wasn't that great to read right after we hear that the sons of Eli were messing with the women at the temple? It's a good thing. One of the gifts I think we often get as we're reading through the Old Testament narratives is the idea that the Lord is still doing good things, even though there's so much bad going on. I think sometimes it's kind of disheartening to read through these narratives because it just seems like the Lord is having to destroy all the bad people. Well, all of them are the bad people, and every once in a while we get this really cool glimmer of hope, and we get that with Samuel in this text. God is a God of justice and mercy. God is a God of wrath and love, a God of war and peace. And I think so many times we focus on the bad stuff and then want to ask hard questions like, well, why does the God of the Old Testament seem so much different than the God of the New Testament? However, when we look at how Samuel is growing, how the life of Hannah has been completely re redeemed, we need to reconsider that. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are doing the same things. They're the same one. Samuel's mother cherished him and made him a new robe every year as he grew. They would make their yearly pilgrimage to Shiloh because a better sacrifice was still yet to come. And even Eli, with the knowledge of his wicked sons in the background, consider this saw fit to bless the family, Elkanah and Hannah, who were formerly barren, and now she became a very fertile woman and had, counting Samuel, six kids. And I love the connection that we see to Jesus here. I think it's striking. I think it's incredibly striking. It's almost as if Luke read through the Old Testament before he wrote his gospel and saw the parallels. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. I love this story about Jesus, but I hope this story about Jesus brings a new light after reading this story about Samuel. Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 41. And I'm just going to read this whole story because I just love it. Now his parents, talking about Jesus, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was twelve years old, he went up according to the custom. And when the feast had ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing to him to be in the group that they, they went a day's journey when they had began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, 
They were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And get this. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. It's incredible. Samuel, just like Jesus, was a light in a dark place. He alone seemed to be after the Lord's business, and he served the Lord. And I think for us, this isn't a story about how we are like Samuel, because we're not. At, at best, I think we're recovering Hophni and Phineas's. We tend to be more like them. However, what is the hope that we have in the Lord? We know that we have a high priest who is currently interceding for us on our behalf, even now at the right hand of God, and what does he pray for his people? Well, we should remember this. Turn to John 17. I know we're doing a lot of flipping this morning, but it's just good for us. John 17. What does he pray for his people when it comes to this and and our walk on this earth and becoming less like Hophni and Phinehas? More like Samuel. Look at John 17, starting at verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And as for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may be sanctified in the truth. What does our Lord Jesus pray for us right now? His prayer is that we'll seek more and more after him, that we'll grow in wisdom and knowledge, and that we'll sit quietly by and learn from our teachers and gain understanding so that we too can be teachers. It's the hope of the Christian life that while we are stuck here, that he might use us and sanctify us so that we might better serve him. We can't all be Samuel, but by God's grace, we're getting better. And that brings me to the last point, the faithful priest who does the work. And so here comes this man of God in verse 27. There was a man of God to... And there came a man of God to Eli, and he said to him, we don't know who this man of God is, he's never given a name, but he's going to declare some pretty serious things, namely that Hophni and Phinehas are going to die on the same day, and that the house of Eli is going to be cursed for breaking the terms of a covenant and the terms of of his office as priest. And like the rest of this passage, we are given a short glimmer of hope at the end. And I love this. Look at verse 35. After he said, I'm going to wipe your your family off the earth, he basically says this, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. 
So what's going on here? Well, some commentators think this is talking about Sam, Samuel, the faithful priest. But Samuel, as you read on, becomes more like a prophet than a priest. He just is one of the older prophets, as he's called to, or one of the first prophets. Most settle on the fact that this is a man by the name of Zadok. And you can read later in some of the other literature that Zadok was a priest under David in the line of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. And I think this is right historically, that this is the faithful priest that will come, so that the prophecy would have this, quote-unquote, already fulfillment. But I think there's a not-yet fulfillment to this as well, or as far as they were concerned, a not-yet fulfillment. Because even Zadok, as good as he may have been, we're not actually told much about him in scriptures, wasn't faithful as we need him to be. He wasn't as faithful as his people needed him to be. His house couldn't be as sure as we ultimately need it to be. Zadok wasn't nearly faithful enough to completely do the will of God and completely redeem the priesthood. We need something better. And so who does this point to? I think it points straight to Jesus. He is the faithful one of Israel, not only the faithful priest, but the faithful prophet, much better than Samuel, the faithful king, much better than David. In Jesus, we don't need another. We don't need to look into the future when a better man will come along. We also no longer need to bring the sacrifice. Looking forward to the year that we'll no longer need to do that. Just like Samuel's family was having to do every year. Just like Mary and Joseph did when they took little Jesus to, to the city. They had to offer a sacrifice. Why? Because Jesus was the last one. And so even as we come to the Lord's table today, we celebrate this once and for all death for his people, for all of his people, the death that delivered them from their sin and from their death that they may have hope. He is the faithful priest. And so in conclusion, what is our hope? Again, like Hophni and Phinehas, we profane the worship of God, if with nothing else but our idle hearts. However, in Christ, we are given the guarantee of no condemnation and even sanctification. Even we are being made better so that, Lord willing, this time next year we'll be able to say, thank the Lord I'm better than I was. Hallelujah. And so what is your hope outside of Jesus? Well, look at verse 25 of, of 1 Samuel 2. What is the hope outside of Jesus? If someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of the Father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. What is the hope outside of Jesus? It is the will of the Lord to put you to death. Outside of the Jesus, it is his will that you will face eternal damnation. But there is a way out. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Call upon Jesus and be saved. For the believer, what do we do? We cling to the hope that he is making us new, that we are being made better worshipers of the Lord. And so let us seek out those things, brothers and sisters, that stand in the way of our worship of our Savior. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this story. We are sorry for the times that we profane your worship, that we come to you with idle hearts, that we come to you 
with the things of this world on our mind rather than the, your things, rather than your redemption. And so we pray that you would help us, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.